Hello there and welcome to the Every Ounce Podcast. Here we talk all things mental health, wellness, and resilience. I'm your host Lexi and I am determined to bring you a one-stop shop for all things related to mental might. Join us for talks about naps and fruit snacks to the most real and raw conversations of life. This is where you will find community, validation, and most importantly, strength. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Once again, I'm here with somebody from the Instagram world who's helping women navigate nutrition in the real world. Amanda Lambricks is a registered dietitian and actively fights against food obsession, ditching diets, and working towards body acceptance and authentic living. She's the podcast host of Spilling the Beans and is overall an extraordinary advocate for mental well-being and weight inclusivity. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. This is so fun to be on someone else's show. It's fun. I love it. I'm just getting started. Um, I can't decide what I like better, interviewing or being the interviewee, but um, either way, I kind of love it. Yeah, it's nice to be on both ends of it, and I'm still a newbie too, so we're in this together. (laughs) Good, good. So introduce yourself. Tell us about your mental health story and how you got into the work that you're doing now. Yeah, so I'm a registered dietitian and I got into being interested in mental health and um, from that also helping women primarily who are struggling with food issues, uh, a lot of times eating disorders, or if it's not officially diagnosed as a full-blown eating disorder, somewhere on that spectrum, I tend to call it. So I got into that. um, I became a dietitian in 2016, and I was initially drawn to dietetics because I had my own difficulties with food growing up. And I don't think I realized that's why I was drawn to it. I think I I just thought, oh, I really like to eat healthy and I want to be healthy, but really below all of that and beneath all of that, there was a fear of gaining weight and something I've learned over the years and also in talking to other dietitians is that a lot of women, especially since it's a predominantly female field, have also come to the field with their own problems, uh, with their own fueling of their body or mental health issues. And it's almost like when you hear of people who go into psychology have some of their own underlying issues, it's like you wanna solve your problems. So I find that it's pretty similar in dietetics as well. And so um, I initially was very much more that traditional route as far as a dietitian. I wanted to do weight loss counseling and that sort of thing. And then um, as I got into my first year as a dietitian, I started seeing a lot of things about that area that I didn't like. And I was also in that process uh, more on the end of recovering from my own issues. So that's a bit of my journey in a nutshell. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I love hearing the backstories of things because sometimes I see what individuals are doing now and I'm always like, what got them there? What got them to the point where they're at and how they can help other individuals? And so I love hearing kind of that background and and I appreciate you sharing your your own story. So you have a podcast of your own, obviously, and it's called Spilling the Beans. What is that podcast all about? 
Yeah. Well, thanks for reaching out and for listening to my podcast and finding it on Instagram or the internet. So I am also, like I said, still new to podcasting. I just wrapped up my first season back in August of 2020. And I had been thinking of starting a podcast for quite a while. I listened to a lot myself and a lot that have helped me I think become a better dietitian um, Mm -hmm. and a more weight inclusive dietitian, but have also just helped me personally with my own mental health and also with my own relationship with food. So a popular one I often refer to is Christy Harrison's food psych. She's one of the seminal ones in the area of dietetics um, and really one of the first ones. And so I have always wanted to do one, but I wasn't sure of the logistics of it. And I actually started it like a lot of people did back when quarantine first started. I think I was a little bit stir crazy and thought it was the perfect time. And so that's when it all started. But essentially what my podcast is about is probably similar to what you talk to your guests about too. I am interested in knowing what people's journey with food has been like. What was it like when they were growing up? How has it changed now? Where do they feel like they are in relationship with their food at this point in their life? And thus far, I've interviewed a lot of my colleagues who are also dietitians. So I'm also curious to hear from them about when did they first hear of intuitive eating? When did they first hear of health at every size? Or you'll often hear it referred to as HAES, H-A-E-S. And that's a trademark term as well, because that's not something we learned about when we were studying to be dietitians. So I had my own way of learning about what intuitive eating and health at every size was. So I'm also curious about how everyone else started to learn about it. Right. And I love that. And I, on my podcast here, I like having such a wide variety of guests. And I think everybody brings their own little pieces of advice or experiences. And I love just having a place where I can kind of collect all of those conversations and I can have the dietitians and I can have the diversity of guests. I can have discussions about mental illness. I can have discussions about stigma. I can have topics about food freedom. And it's just such a wonderful collection of of conversations. I'm hoping to eventually have such a widespread variety that everybody can find something, right? That some Mm -hmm. episode that serves them in some way. And so I appreciate you being on and, and bringing your experience to the table today. Yeah. And I always say I'm, I'm really the selfish one when it comes to podcasts, because I just enjoy the conversation so much. And it's a time for me to reach out to people I'd really admire and take an hour of their time to interview them. (laughs) And it's really a good educational experience for me as well. So it's really also self-serving. in a sense. (laughs) Well, I often say about just like my Instagram or just website content in general, that I can almost guarantee, I would bet money that I have learned more than any one of my followers, like hands down, that I'm the one that has probably grown and learned and educated myself the most. And so sometimes I think that half the time I'm kind of preaching to the choir. I'm like, hey, take your own advice, Lexi, like this post is for you um, or whatever. And so I feel kind of the same way. When it comes to intuitive eating, I mentioned this a lot in Instagram or in just content. We've talked about it before on the podcast, but we've never really broken it down into what the heck is intuitive eating, like intuitive eating 101. So you've gone through and broken down each of the principles of intuitive eating on your podcast. 
We also know that dieting can create a scarcity mindset and that intuitive eating can help with that. Can you explain to listeners what intuitive eating really is and how they can get started with it? Yeah. So intuitive eating is one of those things that I think can be really confusing for people because it's certainly not what our diet culture teaches us. Often what we're told is if we are hungry, then we should try to drink more water and we're certainly not hungry. It teaches us to have this distrust towards our body's natural cues and its natural needs. So intuitive eating is really just bringing you back to being in tune with your hunger cues, your fullness cues. It's also incorporating feeling satisfied with the types of food choices that you're making. And then it's also bringing in that trust of your body um, around food, essentially. So that's what I would say intuitive eating is in a nutshell. Um, It's also so much more than that. There's 10 principles. So sometimes I think Uh, Just because on social media, it's difficult to bring in all of the nuance that different topics like this have. A lot of people don't even realize that there's 10 principles and there's a process that one might go through to become an intuitive eater. I think a lot of times people confuse intuitive eating and mindful eating, and there's definitely an overlap there. Um, But a lot of people think intuitive eating is just oh, I eat whatever sounds good whenever I want it um, at whatever time. um, And then I just stop when I'm full. And so there's a lot of misconceptions about what it is and what it is not. Awesome. And I am currently deep into the the book and I adore it. Um, It's so good. And just so that listeners know, I just literally grabbed my book that was sitting on my nightstand. I'm going to read through what those 10 principles are so that listeners can kind of be aware of what those are. So principle one is reject the diet mentality. And then it goes into honor your hunger, making peace with food, challenge the food police, discover the satisfaction factor, fill your fullness, cope with your emotions with kindness, respect your body, movement, feel the difference, and honor your health with gentle nutrition. And so what I love is that I too used to think that it was this hunger fullness diet. You ate when you were hungry, you stopped when you were full. Or with that being said that like with that, there was no rules or anything like that. And that's true. And I don't want to discredit that, but there's so much more to it. It's about movement. It's about nutrition. It's about satisfaction. And I think going through each of those principles, not even necessarily in that order, but just making sure you hit each of those principles is where intuitive eating really can kind of kickstart um, a a good mindset and a good healthy balance with your body. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head there. I think, you know, you picked up your book and we're reading through the principles. That's exactly one of the first places I tell people to start because of course, you know, follow all the Instagram accounts and surround yourself with what I call in a non-diet bubble. So getting rid of all of those um, fitspo accounts and the ones Mm -hmm. that make you feel like you're not eating well enough, or you're not working out hard enough, or you're not um, fit enough, try to surround yourself with these more positive ones. But to get more of that detail of what it entails to become an intuitive eater, um, I would definitely recommend picking up the book. And you can also, I mean, if you aren't able or you don't have 
access to it um, or the financial means, you can typically get it at a library. There's even apps that you can get where you can get an e-copy or you can listen to the book too. I've read the book a couple times just to refresh my memory. And I've also listened to the audiobook, and both are excellent ways to do so. Um, and I think one thing too, as you're reading it or listening to it, it, I, it's one of those things where you have all these aha moments. I remember the first time I read the book, I believe was back in 2016. I had heard about intuitive eating prior to that when I was in graduate school, but I just, I thought it was crazy. I was like, there's no way I'm going to eat whatever I want anytime. Like I can't trust my body. That's great for some people, but that sounds like a disaster for me. I think I was ambivalent about the idea, but when I finally was to a point where I was just sick of feeling like I was working against my own body, I decided to pick up the book and give it a shot. And I remember reading different stories. The dietitians who wrote the book bring in a lot of different client stories. They've been dietitians for far longer than, um, than I have. And I think they wrote the first book back in the mid or early nineties. Um, and I was still a baby back then. (laughs) And so, uh, they've been doing this for a long time. So they have a lot of client stories and they'll talk about different things. Like for example, when a client tries to cut out a bunch of sugar or cut out different food groups, all of a sudden they're craving it. And for the longest time, when I would do things like that in my own life, I just thought, wow, I have no self-control. I feel like everyone else can do this. Everyone else can cut out all these food groups and I have no self-control. I will just binge on those items and then I'll go back to square one and try to restrict them. And then I found out there's a reason we do that. Um, We're not meant to restrict our body like that. So just different stories and examples like that, I think are so relatable in the book. I agree. And there's so many people that they talk about and whether that's a real or a, you know, created name for that particular client or situation, there's so many people that I'm like, I'm that person, or I used to be that person, or I'm a combination of these people. And I would be absolutely amazed if somebody could read the book intuitive eating from cover to cover and not find a situation that applied to them. Like I would be stunned if that was possible. Um, And so I think honestly, the best place is just to go to the source and to read the freaking book. It's so good. And um, for me, I read through the principles on the intuitive eating website, um, which is just a a basic overview. And it goes through just like a little mini paragraph on each one. And that's what I kind of familiarized with before anything. And, And that's still what I refer to if I just need a quick refresher, if I just need a quick recap, whatever it is, that's where I go is to those 10 principles and those 10 mini, mini topics. Um, I also, I think this is just hilarious and I have to, I have to share it here. My sister actually is, she's currently a a sophomore in high school. And so she's taking a health class and whatnot. And one of the assignments is to track your calories for like three days, which is one thing that I did in throughout my educational, you know, academic career. And but the, the further along I got and through eating disorder recovery and everything, my family kind of has come to terms with it. We're not really okay with that. And that if that works for other students, then so be it. But, but that my mom particularly likes to reach out to 
the teacher or the professor or whatever and just be like hey you know what is there an alternative assignment that she can that she can do because this is our experience and you know my other daughter didn't have a great experience with that that's kind of what started this whole disordered eating concept and that's the le- the last thing we want right now um and whatnot and so my mom forwards this email to me a couple months ago and she goes Lexi what should I say to this teacher what would you suggest like what other alternate assignment should I have her do like I don't know what I don't know what to suggest. And I said, why don't you tell them that we're big fans of intuitive eating and that she would like an assignment created around the 10 principles of intuitive eating. So I actually emailed this teacher back and I was like, Hey, as I, as if I was my mom and I'm thinking, okay, she could, as, as maybe just an example assignment, she could read through the 10 principles, write what she learned about it and lit and eat according to intuitive eating for a couple of days, you know, and whatnot. And so I thought it was so funny. My little sister messages me and she goes, is this really what my assignment is? And I'm like, yep, I just created that for you. You're welcome. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's, isn't it cool to think of how far you have come when you look back at your journey too. I always think that about myself um, and where I was when I was in my early years and then later years of high school and, um, even college too, when I struggled more with body image and, and eating and stuff like that. But I think back and I'm like, wow, I'm a completely different person. So it's really cool to hear that you were the positive influence in that, and you created this entirely new, (laughs) (laughs) entirely new project. That's going to be far more helpful than knowing the calories of a granola bar. (laughs) Right. I just thought it was so funny because I was just like, tell them what we're big fans of intuitive eating. That totally (laughs) is on the same lines as what they're trying to come across, but with so much better intention. And so I just thought it was absolutely hilarious. And I was like, yeah, the the more people that kind of suggest this, the better off our education system will be. And so it was just, it was just funny. And um, I think we've come so far with intuitive eating and, and the fact that it's starting to become I don't want to say common knowledge but a little more common knowledge than what it used to be is is phenomenal even when I I take my book and I go read it while I'm you know at appointments or waiting or whatnot and people will ask me they'll be like oh so what book are you reading and I'm like oh here's the opportunity I have (laughs) to tell you what intuitive eating is and a lot of people look at me like I'm a total nerd and I'm like hey back off this is the good stuff in the in the literature world (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and you know even if they don't know what it is when you mention it who knows like someone could pick that book up or maybe they'll google it after they have this random conversation with you and they might be converted too and they never go on a diet again so I think that's amazing I love it keep spreading the word (laughs) exactly and intuitive eating is hands down the future of of real health in my opinion I agree so how can individuals take what they've learned about living and eating intuitively into the real world. I know you mentioned that on your own platform. How do you recommend doing that? Yeah. So something that I find um, I've found in my own personal experience, I've found when working with clients and also talking to other people on my podcast who consider themselves to be intuitive eaters now after having a bit of a rocky history with their relationship with food. But what I find is that once you start learning to be more flexible with your eating and also with your exercise, I think it translates well into other areas of your life as well. So I had an episode on my podcast where I was talking about how um, I think it can be really challenging 
uh, again, I typically talk about women. So it, typically for women, when they graduate and make a transition, for example, from college to what I call the real world, because I think that can be a time where it can trigger those feelings of wanting to diet or being worried that things are out of control or it's just a, a weird transition when you get to that stage of your life. And so the nice thing about intuitive eating is it can help us feel more calm and flexible in other areas of our life too. So we can go with the flow. So, um, a lot of times what I find with people that have more obsessive tendencies with their eating, they might be more perfectionistic in other areas of their life. So maybe grades, for example, for me growing up, it was like the end of the world if I didn't get a solid A in a class. Oh, yes. I'm very <laughs> you can You can probably <laughs> relate. I know a lot of people can relate to that aspect. Um, um, particularly girls who have eating disorders. And so um, for me, learning to become an intuitive eater, I've learned to relax in other areas of my life too. So I used to be really uncomfortable not being productive all the time. So if it was the weekend, I felt like if I wanted to binge a show on Netflix, it made me anxious. Like I had to be multitasking something, but now I've learned more of that value of rest and, and other areas of my life as well. And more of that balance. You know, I've honestly never really thought about it like that, but now that you mentioned that I can see that in my own recovery, like throughout my eating disorder recovery, perfectionism was what was kind of underlying that eating disorder for me and learning to become an intuitive eater and kind of just let go of some of the toxicity and these rules that I had created around food kind of started to deconstruct those rules that I had created in other areas of my life. Um, I became less of a listy kind of person. Like I always recorded everything. I even wrote down in my planner, like when I wanted to paint my nails, even though it was just something that I wanted to do, I mm -hmm. recorded absolutely everything. And since I stopped, you know, dieting per se, I, and became an intuitive eater, I kind of lost those other types of negative qualities um, which is so beneficial. I think that living intuitively is so much more than just eating, but just listening, almost just kind of like going with your gut and, mm -hmm. and just living your best life. I mean, obviously not being too carefree, but, but finding some balance and into finding what's really healthy. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, um, it's still okay to have structure, but I can relate to that too. You mentioned um, even putting like the exact time you're going to paint your nails. That's how I was too. I just felt like if I could have everything in control in regards to what I was eating, but also other areas of my life, then I just thought I would succeed and, and you know, meet all of these expectations that really I had set for myself. Um, it wasn't necessarily like my family or anything putting pressure on me. Um, but like you said, you start to, once you're realizing like, oh, these things about the dieting world are all lies and a bunch of BS, you start challenging other areas of your life too. So like uh, there's areas of the internet that will talk a lot about what it means to be successful and you have to do this and you have to do that. And you can start pushing the boundaries of those expectations as well. And you can start to, um, you know, have a more healthy relationship with whether it's your school or your working environment too. So I think really it does translate into other areas of your life as well. I liked how you mentioned control because a lot of times disordered eating or um, diets in general are all focused on having that type of control 
what would you suggest to those individuals that are trying to let go of that control, but are just having that hard time trusting themselves and trusting their body and kind of trusting the process of intuitive eating? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's tough. I think, uh, it takes time. I would say, and this is easier said than done because I am the least patient person in the world. I think <laughs> but I would say doing your best to have patience with the process, because I think there's, it's, recovery is kind of like a roller coaster. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be days when you feel like, wow, I'm really doing this. I'm, I'm feeling great. I'm eating what I want. I'm not feeling guilty. And then the next day you might um, hit a low and you feel um, really terrible about yourself and, and you feel like recovery is not worth it. So I think having a good support system is so important. So if you have the means being able to have a good team around you. So whether that means, um, having a therapist, seeing a dietitian, um, working together to make sure that we can get set up with a little bit of structure. So obviously, you know, if you feel like you're really tightly wound and, um, very perfectionistic, you, you still have to have some structure. And, um, that's another misconception too, is when we're recovering from an eating disorder, for example, um, a dietitian doesn't just throw out intuitive eating and say, Hey, just eat intuitively. You know, we're still going to come up with some structure and a meal plan to make sure you're nourished and while still working for that, um, non-diet mentality. So, also, you know, making sure other parts of your environment are conducive to recovery as well. So I wish it was like this very easy one size fits all <laughs> process of helping you let go, but um, being patient can definitely help with that process. Yeah. And I think focusing on all of those different aspects of wellness and just that well-roundedness of your environment and different things like that, that you mentioned is so important as well as kind of contributing to that um, that healthy mindset and that becoming an intuitive eater. I kind of want to switch the topic a little bit, go a little bit of a different direction because I am dying to talk about weight bias in healthcare. It's mm. been on my mind and I just, oh, I got to talk about it. So what do all individuals need to know about its prominence and how to battle against it in an effort to get to weight inclusivity, what is going on in healthcare? I know that this is something that you've talked about um, before. Can you explain to listeners what the heck is going on and what we need to do about it? Yeah, so I love this topic and it's certainly not something that I learned about in school. And I always like to, before I talk about weight stigma or weight bias, I always like to give a bit of a disclaimer and acknowledge that I come to this conversation with a lot of privilege. So mm. I am a thin person. Um, I've had my struggles with food and I think acknowledging that um, I have privilege certainly doesn't take away from any struggles that I've had. But um, especially with this particular topic, um, I do want to just say it, it, living in a thinner body and going into the healthcare system, it's certainly um, a bit easier than if I were in a larger body. So with that said, weight stigma and weight bias um, is really uh, it's all over. You, when you realize what it looks like, you see it in all areas of the health system. So what this might look like is, let's see that say there's um, person A and they are in a thin body, and then there's person B and they live in a larger body, um, what our society would consider a larger body. Um, so person A goes to the doctor and they have the symptoms of strep 
throat say so when you when that person in the thinner body goes to the doctor the doctor is going to you know run the test check things out whatever and then give them whatever subscription or prescription rather <laughs> that they might need to help with their strep throat and then go on their merry little way however with person b what we hear of often um, unfortunately, is they'll go in with the same exact symptoms, the same exact problem. They'll say they have strep throat as well. And often what they might be told is, okay, well, you need to lose weight. So often what happens in the healthcare system is a person's experience are somewhat discredited and the cure to any of their woes is losing weight. So um, I've heard stories, if you search or listen to podcasts, you hear all sorts of things. I know for sure on Christy Harrison's podcast, she gets a lot of diversity in her guests who can share some really heartbreaking stories about how they've been misdiagnosed, where they come in. And there's even been cases where people in larger bodies come in and they have cancer or something and they've lost weight and they've been congratulated on their weight loss when in reality they had something like cancer. Um, you know, and, and there's all different types of stories that people can tell. So basically what's happening is the doctor is not giving you the same type of treatment because of a preconceived idea that they have about your body size. Right. And I think like with that being said, there's definitely... I don't know the best language to put this, but there's, there's good and bad individual. And I don't want to say good and bad, but there's good and bad aspects of every profession. And, and so there are some, you know, healthcare workers that are absolutely phenomenal at what they do. Absolutely great. And provide us with so much care and, and benefit, but there are others that just need a little more awareness. And so I think that's kind of where we're at is trying to fill that gap and trying to bring us all kind of up to par when it comes to weight inclusivity. What would you recommend healthcare workers do to kind of make their practice more inclusive to those at every body shape or at every body size? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, and also just to piggyback off of what you said, um, I don't necessarily, of course, there's probably exceptions out there, but I don't necessarily think doctors or dietitians or, you know, whatever area of healthcare um, an individual is working in, it's not that they're going out there and explicitly trying to um, make someone feel badly about their bodies often it's an implicit bias. So it's a bias they're not even aware of. They don't realize that they're, um, they have a bias um, about people and living in larger bodies. And so they don't necessarily always realize that they're not giving a fair treatment towards those people. So something that I've heard of that people will do is they will say, um, so for example, if you asked for a test to be run, and they don't want to have this test run because they just think it's a weight issue, you can say, hey, um, I want you to document that in the chart. And then usually they will then back off and they will run the test or whatever the situation is. So right. when you make it aware that you're not getting the treatment that you're asking for, sometimes they will acknowledge that. But off that rant, something I think that's really important for healthcare providers to do is to learn more about the biases that they have and also to find different ways to make their practice more inclusive. So one way you can learn about the types of 
um, implicit bias is, I believe it's Harvard. I could be wrong. I think um, so. I think it's Harvard has um, some implicit bias tests. So they have it for a lot of different topics. They have it on body size um, and you can just Google it. It's not like a test you have to pay for. You can just take it on their website. There's also one on skin color. I think there's a gender one as well. So um, it can just make you more aware. It's not necessarily to shame you. We all have different biases um, depending on how we were raised or the environment we grew up in. So I think just having that awareness, number one, is a good thing. For me personally, when I started to make my practice more inclusive, I made sure that the pictures that I was using are more inclusive. So if you go to my, I think if you have a practice in person, something that maybe we don't think about is the size of chairs, for example. So if you live in a thinner body, you probably have never had to think about is the chair sturdy that I'm sitting in? Does it have arms on the side that are going to like cut into my skin when I sit down? Am I going mm -hmm. to feel really uncomfortable? So making sure that the furniture in your space is comfortable and inviting to people. So things like that can be really helpful. The language that you use, asking permission when you talk about certain topics um, and just making it very welcoming. I could rant about this topic for a long time, but those are a couple of different things <laughs> I would include for sure. You're good. Well, and I I definitely feel like we have a long ways that we could go in, in the healthcare system. And we have so many so many areas to cover, but just starting with a awareness is sometimes the biggest thing. Just that recognition is, is usually the number one priority, just like those implicit associations and discovering what biases we do have um, and trying to kind of combat them in the best way that we can. We don't have to go through a long or lengthy process. Just that recognition is critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, um, it's not necessarily the exact same thing, but um, there's been a lot more talk this year about our biases towards people of color. So it's in that similar ballpark of social justice and just having more awareness. And like you said, first step, learning about it, bringing more attention and awareness to it, and then thinking of, okay, what are action steps that I can personally do? I've learned from mistakes I've had. I'm going to move forward. What can I do now to make um, my practice or make sure that I'm treating people more fairly and I'm more approachable? Right. On that same kind of topic, can you give us a, a broad definition of weight inclusivity? This is kind of what we've been talking about, but can you kind of define that for us? So weight inclusivity is really, I'm welcoming a person of any body size to my practice, and I'm not going to force weight loss on you. So when I'm thinking in terms of weight inclusive, I'm going to be giving you the same type of care that I would give someone who is the smallest size, whether you're the largest size, I'm not going to prescribe weight loss to you. So oftentimes, much like we were just talking about, this is a good segue, often the things that a person who is very small gets for their care is not going to be the same that a dietitian would give if you're in a larger body. So often people just assume when you're in a larger body, the end goal has to be weight loss. When in reality, okay, let's look at other goals. So my goals when I'm working with clients is never lose X number of pounds. 
because first of all, um, I could go on a whole rant on this too, but first of all, when we're looking at goals, we want them to be things that we can actually take action on. Whereas in research, it shows that we don't have as much control over our weight as we once maybe thought we did. So saying lose, you know, we'll just say 200 pounds and say it's an extreme number. Having that as a goal, well, first of all, I'm, I can't just go and lose those 200 pounds. You know, what are the steps I'm taking to be healthier? Losing that number on the scale is not going to be a goal. It's what are those action steps that are making me healthier? So I always tell people there's three things that three things that can happen to your weight when you work with me, but we're not going to focus on it. So those three things are you can lose weight, you might gain weight, or it might stay the same. It doesn't really matter to me what happens to your weight, but what are the things that we can do to be healthier? So for example, if I'm working with you and in one of our first appointments, we find out that you're feeling really tired in the afternoon when you're working or studying, we might look at, okay, well, what, what does your eating look like? What does your sleep schedule look like? I also bring that into my practice. What does um, your hydration level look at? So what are things that we could incorporate? Maybe you need an afternoon snack that has some protein and carbs in it. Maybe that's going to give you a bit of an energy boost to get you through that afternoon. So those are the types of things we would look at um, and they have nothing to do with the number on the scale. I love that. And that's something that I kind of try to emphasize as well. And thanks for giving me some advice on how to combat my afternoon, (laughs) (laughs) my afternoon laziness, like my just tiredness in the afternoon. I don't know what it is between the hours of like two and five, but I could just take a nap every single day. I swear. Me too. (laughs) So I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's my sleep schedule. I don't know if it's my snacks. I don't know, but I need some more energy in the afternoon. (laughs) So I appreciate the advice (laughs) in that regard as well. I was just going to ask if weight inclusive dietitians are all necessarily anti-weight loss, but you kind of covered that for us. Like proposing weight loss as a solution isn't something that a weight inclusive dietitian is necessarily going to incorporate. And I, I loved this kind of, I, I made a reel once and um, it, it said something along the lines of your body could get a little bit bigger. It could not get bigger at all. It might get smaller. We don't know, but regardless, we're totally prepared. And I love that. And it was just kind of like, you know what, no matter what happens, I don't know if when you become an intuitive eater, heck, you could maybe gain weight, you could maybe lose weight, you could stay the exact same. I don't know. But in the end, it's going to be better off for your health. And you're going to find that place that your body wants to be and, and where your mind is ready to be. And so I think that that's so important when we think about weight is that sure, weight's always kind of there but in my mind it's always kind of off to the side and it's definitely not number one as far as health is concerned I noticed some of your posts on your accounts about describing foods and that there are certain words such as clean or full of chemicals or fattening that just might not be as helpful as descriptive words like smooth or crunchy or rich and when you're describing food I love this idea of it's not focused on the morality of food, but rather, is it satisfying? So can you expound on that and how listeners can begin to incorporate this into their own eating habits? 
Yeah, I love this topic. So um, this is something I remember hearing and thinking more about when I was also reading intuitive eating um, for the first time. And then it's something I always come back to. So when we hear people talk about food, um, we often hear them talk about like, oh, I was so bad. I had cake for dessert or um, that was really just junk food or all these negative words about the foods that tend to taste really good, if we're being mm-hmm. honest. And it really has, um, you know, all this negative connotation to it. And then it ends up making us feel bad. And then again, we get into what I would call like a shame cycle where we are trying to restrict and then, you know, so on and so forth. When in reality, I mean, food is none of those things. You know, it's not this evil thing. Food serves a purpose. It can be for nutritious reasons. It can be um, simply because it sounds good and it's satisfying to us in that moment, but it's certainly not this evil thing that we make it out to be. So I really try to get people back to just describing what it is. You can talk about in terms of the texture, you can talk Um, in terms of the temperature. Is it hot? Is it cold? Um, All these different things. So really bringing it back to the basics. So it's almost like you're bringing it back to when you were a child before you were aware of all of the evils of diet culture. So when you were little, you might say something like, I want something sweet. Um, And that might, or you might describe the texture. Um, And it's just bringing it back to the basics um, and not bringing that moral judgment that we often bring to the foods on our plate. I agree. And in my mind, like I used to think of that as foods are good or bad. And Mm -hmm. now if a food is good or bad to me, that's whether or not I like it. Like (laughs) good foods are the foods I like. Bad foods are the foods I don't like. I was one time talking to my grandparents and they were over visiting our house and, and my grandpa in all seriousness goes, Lexi, I do not care what you say. And I'm preparing myself going, Oh boy, here I am. I'm going to have to educate. I'm going to have to agree to disagree. I don't know what's going to come out of his mouth, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hold my temper together. And he goes, I don't care what you say. Beets are bad. (laughs) just, I just cracked up laughing. He goes, those things are disgusting. And I was like, okay, okay, whatever, you know. But that's what I think of is like bad foods are the foods I don't particularly like. Mm -hmm. And and there is no food that I won't eat because of its quote unquote morality. Mm -hmm. Um, There are foods that I have no desire to eat because I just simply don't like them. But Mm -hmm. there's no food that's off the table because it's too far bad or it's too full of chemicals or too fattening or whatnot there's no food that I have restricted if that makes any sense and so I just think that's an important note as well yeah and I think also when you bring a lot of those terms into play they're so subjective so you'll often hear people say like I'm eating clean or um you know whatever the case may be and a lot of those don't even have an official definition. So what might be quote unquote clean on one plan is not considered clean on another. Um, And so I, it's more subjective as far as like you said, oh, this one's good because I enjoy it or it's bad because I don't. So you're bringing that judgment in just based on the flavor, not because of its nutritional value. And it's not to say that, um, I always like to tell people too, it's not that we throw nutrition 
or nutritious foods out the window. Um, in fact, you know, you mentioned at the, at the beginning that the last principle of intuitive eating is gentle nutrition. And the reason it's last is because we have to let go of all these diet rules and this diet mindset before we can get to that. Um, so we can still bring in those more inherently more nutritious foods like our broccoli and our Brussels sprouts and our apples and things like that. They still have a place, but we have to get out of that mindset before we can start setting those more um, nutrition related goals. Right, right. So before I let you go, I have to talk about the Marie Kondo method with dieting. I (laughs) busted a gut when I saw your post about this. You mentioned that bathroom scales, restrictive eating, and obsessive exercising, for example, doesn't bring you joy, so you throw it out. But it's oftentimes a lot more easily said than done. And I personally have, I've read Marie Kondo's book from cover to cover a couple years ago um, because I'm so into organizing and whatnot. And I, I just started laughing. And so for those of those listeners that don't know, her method is kind of that with materialistic items that when you touch it or when you feel it, when you pick it up, if it brings you joy, then you keep it. If it doesn't, then you, you know, kind of throw it out, donate it, put it to the side, whatnot. And so Amanda made a post about the Marie Kondo method with dieting, that dieting doesn't bring her joy. And so she throws it out. Um, And I, I just adore that. So what's your number one piece of advice for someone that's still working through a diet culture consumed lifestyle? Yeah, I would, I have to first say that I'm a huge Marie Kondo fan too. In fact, I watched her series on Netflix and I think she is just the sweetest thing. And I love her approach. She's um, sometimes on those shows, I feel like people can be really pushy about the things that you're supposed to get rid of and make you feel ashamed of it. And so I think she actually relates really well to intuitive eating because she's very gentle and her approach she wants you to show gratitude towards those things and um, move on with your life. But I just, I love her Um, and I love organizing stuff too. So we are soul sisters in that sense. Um, But I would say my number one piece of advice for someone who's still working through a diet culture consumed lifestyle is having a lot of grace with yourself and just starting to do little steps to move you closer it's going to take a little bit of time to get out of that mindset. You are probably someone, um, if I had to guess, because this is how the majority of people are who grew up in this type of mindset. Maybe you grew up in a family that was very um, obsessed with different types of diets. Um, For example, my parents were always on a different type of diet when I was growing up. And so that was very much the norm. So it's going to take a while to work to that place where you start to feel comfortable with the types of foods that you're eating, whether it's a variety where you feel more neutral in terms of how you describe the foods like we just talked about. Um, It's going to take some time to maybe view exercise differently where it's not something you have to do to um, make your body look a certain way and it's rather something you do for enjoyment. Changing that mindset is going to take time. So again, I mentioned this earlier, but trying to surround yourself with a good positive environment. So following accounts like your own on social media are going to be helpful. So you're getting consistent messaging like that, as opposed to the, you know, probably millions of other accounts out there that are telling us to go on a diet. So 
Um, that could be one thing that you do first is just going through, if you're on Instagram, going through your account, unfollowing the accounts that you don't, they don't make you feel very good about yourself. They don't serve you very well and filling it in with a bunch of good, positive accounts. And I think that's going to help get that consistent support. Um, and then of course, if you're able to get a higher level of support, that's helpful too, but that definitely helps you stick with it. I think. Yeah, I agree. That consistency and I, I feel like we've got to fight back against this diet culture as fast as we can because it just keeps coming at us. And if we're not consistently working against it, we're working in favor of it. And and so that's something that I, I like that you mentioned is that consistency when you're so consumed in, in that type of a lifestyle. Amanda, is there anything else that you'd like to mention to listeners before I let you go? Gosh, I don't know if I can think of anything, but I do want to just thank you for having me on your show. This has been such a fun conversation and I look forward to hearing more of your episodes and I love your reels that you've done on Instagram. <laughs> I am oh, thank um, you. I am not good at the whole reel and TikTok thing. I I enjoy watching them, but um I'm not tech savvy enough to pick them up myself. <laughs> Yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey of trying to decide what to kind of recreate and what to just create in general. And I've I will admit there's been times I've been super frustrated, but also like super proud of some of the TikToks and whatnot that I've made. <laughs> so I just think it's funny, but it's a fun way to kind of spread a message. So thank Agree. you. Thanks for that. And with that, I thank you listeners all so much for tuning in today. I hope that Amanda and I have brought you each some insight and progress towards food freedom. If you know someone that would benefit from this episode, please send them this podcast. Be sure to follow Amanda at spillingthebeans underscore nutrition on Instagram and find the Spilling the Beans podcast on all major listening platforms. And of course, don't forget to check out at every ounce dot of strength. Until next time, may you fight with every. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please remember that this podcast, my Instagram account, or any other content on my website should not be used as a replacement for therapy or professional treatment. Eating disorders and mental health conditions are serious psychological and physiological illnesses that should be treated appropriately by licensed professionals. This space is simply for the purpose of community support, offering suggestions, giving hope, and encouraging recovery. Until next time, may you fight with every ounce of strength.